He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Hey there, thank you for listening. Just wanted to let you know about my new newsletter over on Substack called The Crash Report. In these days leading up to the 2024 elections, long-form narrative journalism is where I'll be focusing my energies. I mean, I'll still be podcasting, but the Crash Report is where I'll be writing at length about main politics, far-right extremism, chuds, Christian nationalism, bad priests, drunk coasties, with a little bit of homesteading mixed in for good measure. So head on over to thecrashreport.substack.com where you'll get my latest investigations and podcasts and more. Most of the Crash Report investigations will remain free to the public. Paid subscribers get early and full access to the Crash Report, plus extra content and other perks. It's six bucks monthly, but an annual membership is just 50 bucks. And if you want to be super supportive of my work, sign up for the $150 annual founding members level, and you'll get a signed book, and an invite for two to a private meetup this fall. Also, today's episode needs a content warning. Sensitive listeners should be advised, just like in the latest crash report over at Substack, we'll be discussing Elliot Cutler, that's the two-time indie candidate for Maine governor, who turned out to have a giant stash of terrible content, specifically child rape videos, with victims as young as four years old, over 80,000 images were found on his computer. I tell the whole horrible story in the latest crash report over at Substack. This episode of Disinfomaniacs mostly focuses on how wealth and privilege benefits a rich white elite dude like Cutler while he was facing criminal charges. If that's a trigger for you, you might want to skip this episode, and please visit thecrashreport.substack.com to read the entire pre-obituary of Elliot Cutler. Now, on with the show. Disinfomaniacs is a podcast about the liars, the grifters, and the fascist charlatans intent on destroying democracy. We will be reporting on how their propaganda trickles down to negatively impact local communities. We are here to expose, debunk, and pre-bunk the Disinfomaniacs. Welcome to Disinfomaniacs. Crash Barry here with my pal Andy O'Brien. Hello, Andy. Hey, how's it going? We have some really awful conversation planned for today. We just have to get that out of the way real quick. This is not a light episode. We're going to be talking about Elliot Cutler. Elliot Cutler, a prominent political figure in Maine, sits in the Hancock County Jail, facing child pornography charges. His lawyer telling reporters when asked if he'd make bail, $50,000 is a lot of money. While we will be mocking him and and there is some levity to it, it is very, 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 very um, sensitive topic. Hancock County District Attorney Matt Foster says the 75-year-old is facing four counts of possessing unlawful sexually explicit material. So this is a content warning that if child sexual abuse material, discussion of child rape videos and crimes committed by a millionaire against children, if that's a trigger, 
you don't want to listen to today's episode. So, Andy, I know you know a lot about Elliot Keller, right. and we'll just very briefly go into his politics here, where he ran as an independent in the 2010 gubernatorial election. It was Paul LePage, uh, Cutler, and Libby Mitchell, and obviously LePage won. And then in 2014, he ran again, and he came in third place behind Mike Michaud, and, and obviously LePage won. Angus King is throwing his support behind his fellow independent and friend, Elliot Cutler, in the race for governor. About all that's surprising about this endorsement is its timing. WMTW News 8's political reporter Paul Merrill joins us now live to explain. Paul? Well, Steve and Katie, four years ago, King endorsed Cutler at the end of October. Today's pre-Labor Day press conference likely indicates that Cutler knows his campaign needs to catch fire sooner rather than later. If the people of Maine look at these candidates and say, who will make the best governor? Who has the ideas? Who has the thinking? Elliot wins. And that's why I believe that he's going to. King calls Cutler a smart and creative consensus builder and problem solver. But the problem Cutler needs to solve right now is how he'll move out of third place in both polling and fundraising. He's selling himself as the independent alternative. I think the choice between Mr. Michaud and Mr. LePage is a choice that I don't want any main voter to have to make. We asked what Cutler will do if he's still lagging behind on election day and in danger of playing the spoiler. I'm waiting to win this campaign. I don't intend to have to make a judgment come October or November. Cutler's opponents are shrugging off today's King endorsement. Cutler spent over a million dollars, uh, 1.1, 1.2 million for each election there, plus you know about a million dollars, million five. Uh, raised from um, people that didn't know he was a pedo and millionaire collector of child rape videos. Because in March of 2022, as just about everybody in Maine knows, Elliot Cutler's house, uh, his farm actually, we got to call it a farm. It's called the Amen Farm in Brooklyn, uh, overlooks uh, Blue Hill Bay. The cops raided it at 7.30 in the morning. It was Friday morning. They went in there with a warrant because of the, a couple of months before, uh, a Dropbox robot, okay, robot at Dropbox file sharing platform, uh, discovered that somebody signed in with the Elliot.Cutler at gmail.com account with an IP address in Brooklyn, Maine, had just uploaded a gargantuan file uh, with all sorts of uh, actual pornography, some adult pornography, but lots of, uh, and we're going to get this out of the way. I know you and I have talked about this in the past. They use the term child pornography. There's no such thing as child pornography. It's child rape videos or CSAM, uh, child sexual abuse material, because that's what these are. Okay, there's no consent involved in the creation of this, and obviously with pornography there's consent. So Cutler had 80,000 files on his computers when the cops showed up. Uh, Cutler's wife was actually still in bed. According to the affidavit, her foot was up. She was in bed recovering from surgery, and Cutler had to tell her in front of the cops that they're here for, and, I, and I'll use the word CP if I'm going to be talking about child pornography. Okay, if, if I'm quoting someone, I say CP. That's them saying that, not me. So Cutler's like, oh, yeah, the, these warrants are for CP that they think they're going to find on some of my computers. And Andy, I mean, what's the basic rule when you get arrested or the cops come? Shut the fuck up. Exactly. So here's Mr. High Price Lawyer, and he's blabbing to, there's there's 13 cops there. 
uh, yeah, well, 11 cops, couple forensic computer cops, and they've got the crime van set outside. And Cutler's sitting at the kitchen table, and he's telling cops, like, oh, you're not going to find anything in the kitchen. Or I could make the search a lot. This is a quote. I could make the search a lot easier, but I think I should wait till I talk to the, my lawyer. And then he's like, can I have my phone back? There's no CP on the phone. So he's, like, talking to the people ripping apart his house and upstairs in his bedroom because he sleeps separate from his wife. He's up on the second floor in a back bedroom, a huge bedroom with very little stuff in it. Sounds very creepy, according to the affidavit from the state police investigator. All that was in there was a very large bed, a CPAP machine, you know, the breathing machine that uh, if you have sleep apnea, it keeps you alive, a desktop computer, and piles of USB drives and external drives and they grab some of the stuff from there in the crime lab, put it to work right away. And they're like instantly finding graphic, violent rapes of four-year-old girl videos. Oof. It's mind-boggling that this is what we're even talking about with Elliot Keller. But guess what? He had over 80,000 files of various sorts. Wow. His lawyer's like, oh, well, he didn't watch them all. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, I feel sorry for lawyers that have to represent guys like this. Because how do you defend that? What's his defense? Well, he didn't watch them all. Yeah, okay. I'm not going to take your word for it that he didn't watch them all. How do you amass such a massive quantity of files? Of According to his lawyer and according to court files, that he's been addicted to this garbage, uh, this filth, for decades, plural. Wow. This current cachet of 80,000 images goes back to 2014 when he was on the ballot, okay, when he got third place. So we know that he probably had previous cachets. Yeah. He, over the years, amassed this stuff, and it was labeled. I don't even want to go into the labels, okay? But there was, like, tags. A lot of this stuff is under seal. Again, I would argue because of wealth and power that they don't want us to know how bad it is. His lawyer tried to make it so that it was like very sanitized in court, though it wasn't mentioned. That's why we're talking about him, because he was arrested and he just got out of you know, lockup. This is just into our newsroom. Elliot Cutler, we're learning, has been released from jail. The former candidate for Maine governor has been behind bars since June. Cutler pleaded guilty to four charges of possessing videos showing sexual abuse of children last May after investigators found thousands of explicit images on computers at his homes in Portland and Brooklyn. His plea agreement requires Cutler to register as a sex offender for the rest of his life, pay $5,000 to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. He will be on probation for six years. Before we get into more about this perv pedo millionaire, Let's go back in time a little bit to 2010 and talk about the Cutler files for a second, because the Cutler files were this thing that alerted us that Cutler was not to be trusted. It was the, the whole point of the Cutler files, which, for those that don't remember it and those not in Maine, was an anonymous website called thecutlerfiles.com that clearly showed through unbelievable documentation. I mean, we're talking hyperlinks to news stories, court documents, mortgage stuff, bankruptcy filings, all, you know, had the details, right? Had the, had the receipts, as the kids say, right? Excellent citizen journalism, but it was anonymous, and it showed that Elliot Cutler was a, like a millionaire, big shot lawyer, working both sides of the runway, representing all sorts of weird things and not doing a good job at any of it. What do you remember about the Cutler files? 
Well, I was in the state legislature at the time as a state representative, and I remember the Cutler files coming out, and and I looked at it, and I was like, okay, this is a big surprise. He's a sleazy rich guy. Um, but, you know, at the time, the media was really puffing him up a lot. I mean, you're going to talk about that in a minute, but uh, he came out of nowhere with a ton of money and just this really brilliant um, campaign uh, and, and and PR strategy. And uh, all the media could focus on at that time was just who is behind this anonymous site. Not that it wasn't true. And they were obsessed with finding out who was behind the site that just had facts about Cutler's background. It had a weird kind of uh, added a weird flavor to the campaign because Cutler came out swinging. Right, right. He like went to the ethics commission and said, who's this? You know, there's no name on it. Right. If I was giving uh, candidate guidance and the Cutler files came out, I would say, like, let's just ignore this. Okay. Right. Let's right. ignore it. It's 2010. Nobody's going to realize this. But he put it right back in front. And I think, as you said, the, the media was very sympathetic. I mean, every newspaper in Maine, every major newspaper in Maine and some of the weeklies endorsed him in 2010. Yes. And the softball coverage was because he was something different, because he was like a, a rich guy from away coming home. Right. And and the way that the Cutler files was reported on was essentially uh, this is some dark money group, some democratic uh, sketchy group that's that's behind it, um, not really reporting on the truth and, and, and what his background was. It was all flim flam and PR bullshit essentially. And that's why everybody jumped to him at the last minute, because they didn't think Libby could win. Which is a, a tragedy, because she would have been an excellent governor, I feel. I always like Libby Mitchell. Yeah. The press herald gave him kind of soft coverage, and I've had sources reach out to me uh, from back in the day and tell me the reason why, and the reason why from the inside is Richard Connor at the time was the publisher of the Portland Press Herald, and he and Cutler were really good buddies. So he was really influencing coverage. Wow. I remember there was a controversy within the newsroom at the Press Herald about uh, Richard Connor meddling into the coverage of his buddy Cutler. And like you said, they were like obsessed by who is this? This is how obsessed the Press Herald was. The Portland Press Herald hired a private investigator. Wow. To try to figure out who it was. That's I'm not sure that's been reported or not. That's I don't think it has. I never heard that. <laughs> One more thing. There's another, you know, uh, power source. It was Angus King, right? Like yeah. Angus King was pushing Elliot Cutler. I'm here in part tonight because of a mailer I got last week. Amen. And the mailer told me that I shouldn't be for Elliot because he knew something about China. <laughs> <laughs> and Elliot was even criticized for bringing a group of food dealers from China in order to sell them lobsters. I did a calculation. If one in 1,000 Chinese has one lobster roll a week, we will be the richest state in America. And King was, at that time, the popular ex-governor. He hadn't become senator yet. So his, like, blessing was very helpful to Cutler. So, you know, so the sheeple were like, oh, you know, look, he's got a barn coat on. He must be, you know, like a Mainer. Independent, just like Maine. So, 2010, the author of the Cutler Files, 
identified himself. Mallory, thanks. Oral arguments expected today over whether a website criticizing a former gubernatorial candidate is a form of free speech. Political consultant Dennis Bailey says that he should not have been fined over his role in creating that site. It was Dennis Bailey, legendary political operative, former Portland Press Herald investigative reporter. Uh, now he lives in Portugal. He's an expat. Very, very smart dude. And I love how you pointed out people are like, is it a Democrat? Is it a Republican? Well, guess what? Dennis Bailey was the mastermind, or as I say in the Substack, sign up for the Substack, the crash report yeah. uh, at Substack. That has a 9,500-word story about all this. So we're, we're glossing over a lot of details. But Dennis Bailey, I call the Dr. Frankenstein of Angus King, the political monster, because back in 94... Uh, I interviewed King, and I was like, no way our Maynard's going to fall for this guy. <laughs> He's got the ego the size of a paper mill. I'm like, no way. Well, obviously, I was very wrong. <laughs> and it was because of Dennis Bailey, because he's a skilled political operative and PR guy. So he's the one that created Angus. But then, years later, he and another fellow, who's the husband of a, of a Democrat, uh, Rosa Scardelli, uh, who lost her bid uh, in the gubernatorial campaign. I remember her well. <laughs> the, her husband actually had started doing the digging and was like mortified that the media hadn't reported on all this stuff that Cutler had done. He shares the information with Bailey, and they did this freelance. Right. Uh, it goes to court. Uh, well, first of all, it goes to the Ethics Commission, and Bailey's fined $200. And uh, $200 because he didn't mark that it was paid for by a candidate, which it wasn't, and it didn't have his name on it. And he goes, well, I don't need to. So he, with the help of the MCLU, had actually appealed the decision, arguing that as a private citizen, he had every right to anonymous free speech. Dennis was very careful to obey the law. He didn't spend over a certain amount of money. It was only it was like there was a $100 limit. He spent like $94. He, he, he did this right because he was like, I need to let my fellow Mainers know that this guy, Elliot Cutler, is not good for Maine. And the media's not listening because he they went and shared it with everybody. They shared it with all the mainstream newspapers. Right. They Nobody would cover it. The Bangor Daily News isn't afraid to support Elliot Cutler, and we shouldn't be either. We're going to talk about treatment now. We're going to talk about what Elliot Cutler got for, again, I'm putting these air quotes up, treatment for, uh, I hate to say it, because of his therapies that he received, he was only going to get the four years, all but nine months suspended. And it turned out to be seven months. Part of the lawyer's argument is saying he went to... Paradise Creek Recovery is a residential treatment center for men dealing with sexual problems, sexual addiction, and problematic sexual behaviors. At Paradise Creek, we help you begin to recover your life, overcome your addiction, and heal in a dignified therapeutic environment paradise creek recovery center okay it's in malta idaho uh, i've i've done a deep dive on this place it's a eight bedroom house but not like a mansion just like a small uh, relatively small i mean it's just a normal house literally nothing around it for miles it's right up against grazing lands so it's just cattle and in the in the in the distance is the high mountain desert of Idaho. And actually, I hate to say this, it made me, I've never been to Idaho, and I know there's a lot of weird white supremacists out there. So if I had to go for a vacation, I think I would go out there just to try, because it looked beautiful, a landscape I've never seen before. I mean, I've been out west, but this was stunning. Uh, so mm. this place that he stayed 
for 28 days, Paradise Creek, and this isn't a jail. This was the, the, the treatment he was getting to convince the judge that he was a good guy. And he did this before? After the arrest, yeah. before sentencing. Gotcha. Okay. And it's like a pre-sentencing gambit to say, oh, look, he's got this. This should mitigate his, you know, sentence. Because even though he's only been charged with four, the judge's got to know that there's 80,000 files on his computer. I mean, there, there's 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 like all sorts of uh, elephants in the room. Like, oh, yeah, yeah so we're pleading guilty to 4K. But there's 80,000 things on this, all his computers confiscated that are in the hands of the court at that point. Money talks. So the, the lawyer was Walter McKee, okay? And Walt McKee, again, this is his job, so this is not a critique of Walt. I mean, this is what the guy gets paid big bucks to do. He argued that Cutler's 28 days of therapy at Paradise Creek was, quote, highly intensive and combined what would otherwise be a year and a half of intensive individual and group therapy into 28 days. A year and a half of intensive individual and group therapy into 28 days. Okay, that's the lawyer saying it. Obviously, take it with a grain of salt. Where did that statistic come from? A, a year and a, First of all, that's not the way therapy works. You don't get a year and a half's worth of therapy crammed into 28 days. Right. I addressed this in the crash report at Substack. 28 days, that's an artificial number invented by the insurance companies for residential treatment for addictions, whether it be booze, drugs, or you know, sex stuff. Okay, so it's like this arbitrary number set up by the insurance companies for billing purposes that doesn't mean anything in terms of actual success of treatment, okay? But that's that's what the therapy model is, okay? So I was able to go onto their website because, you know, they're selling stuff here. This is a, this is a business that's uh, one of many uh, that have sprung up to treat these pervs who suffer from what, quote, unquote, this addiction to... C stam and it's only for the rich folk. Yeah. As I found, it's twenty six thousand dollars. Wow. Twenty six thousand eight hundred and seventy five dollars. I'm sorry, twenty six thousand eight seventy five. No insurance. The insurance does not cover this. Okay. Yeah. For a uh, five week stay, his lawyer said he was there for a twenty eight day stay. I could not find anything about a twenty eight day stay. It doesn't seem like they sell a twenty eight day stay. I don't know if they consider the five week, which would, you know, be thirty five days. But I don't know if that's a twenty eight day one or whatever. But the cheapest one I could find twenty six thousand eight hundred seventy five dollars. And quote, Andy, this is going to drive you crazy. A private room, all treatment modalities, meals and snacks included. End quote. <laughs> meals and snacks included. Like a hotel. I mean, it's a luxury hotel. And I, well, I wouldn't say it's a luxury hotel. No, it's it's definitely. The more rustic. Not rustic. It's just like a normal house. Uh, yeah. There's a kitchen, and yeah, there's also well, we'll go into the campfire in a second. All right. So there's a there's a that was a one month, one month is twenty six grand. Okay. There's another program that goes uh, six weeks, and that goes for thirty two thousand two hundred and fifty dollars. Now again, this is cash only, no insurance. This is a luxury yeah. because this is a used by rich folk. To mitigate their sentencing. Yeah. I, I do this deep dive on the Paradise Creek website and I find this policy required by the center. This is required quote, anyone who is or may be involved in a legal process is required to enroll in the six week 
treatment program. Okay, so the the Paradise Creek has a requirement that you got to be there for six weeks if there's any legal conditions connected to this visit. Mm-hmm. So they broke their own rules for this guy because he only did 28 days. He didn't do six weeks, even though that's the required stay. The policy of the treatment center, and yet then his lawyer is able to portray, well, he successfully completed this 28-day thing, not mentioning that it's actually supposed to be a six-week one, and really not talking about what the therapy is. And the reason why I look at this is because I'm working on a book, uh, Andy, you know, this Unholy Fathers, which mm-hmm. is about the uh, bad priest of Springfield, Massachusetts, based on my podcast, Devils and Dirtbags, season one. And so we go into in that book uh, in great detail, and I'm going to leave most of the gory details out for this podcast and for our discussion right now. But I go into how the uh, serial rapist priest that I knew as a kid, what treatment modalities he underwent and the treatment center he was at and what were the conditions like there. So I'm familiar with the idea of treatment for offenders like this. And it's such a new thing. There's really no proof that any of this works. Okay. This is like just people throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it sticks. Okay. So I looked at what Paradise Creek actually offers. Okay. And what they're focused on is healing the trauma. This is a quote, the trauma that resulted in the problematic sexual behavior. This is what they do for treatment. Okay, this is what drives me crazy. Have you ever heard of the eye movement desensitization and reprocessing? It's called EMDR for short. No. It's a relatively new therapy, okay? It treats trauma, and I'm rolling my eyes when I say this, through moving or literally rolling your eyes wow. in a certain manner while you process traumatic memories. <laughs> Whether that works as a treatment at all is up for debate. But, you know, as I was saying, Cutler, his neural pathways, you know, th- those are carved thick and deep in his big and meaty brain. <laughs> 28 days of, like, talk therapy ain't going to do it. Mm. And there's nothing more, I guess, irritating than to hear that it was 28 days where he had yoga. Oh, yoga. Uh, okay. Art therapy, music therapy. Uh, nightly, weather permitting, there's a, a fire pit out back where they carried on informal conversations about recovery while literally roasting marshmallows and hot dogs. That's a nightly thing as the campfire. And then on Fridays, if the weather's good, you get to go to the City of Rocks, which is a, really a stunning uh, national park about 20 minutes away where you hike and if you so desire... You can get therapy. Do they have that therapy where you like get to play in a sandbox and stuff like that? I know that's a big thing. I, I didn't see the sandbox one. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me, though, because there's all sorts of things. You know, what I'm looking for is maybe him having uh, to go to a 28-day in the high desert uh, daily ayahuasca, uh, you know, dose of ayahuasca and maybe some... Uh, electroshock therapy to coupled with that. Sure. One other thing about this program is like, how do you actually assess that the program had any real world impact, right? Well, there's this thing. It's called CPORT, and CPORT stands for CP, Offender Risk Tool. Okay, it's a it's a test. Uh, and actually, anybody, because I've done a deep dive on this, anybody can administer this test. There's no training on how to give this test, okay? The CPORT test was developed by two Canadian therapists, 
who worked with men who had been arrested for possession of CSAM and we were doing therapy for them. And it's a flawed model. I don't even want to bore you with the details because last August, so this is when he had just been sentenced. So Cutler was already in the lockup when this came out. The American Psychological Association, this journal, Law and Human Behavior. Okay, so this is the shrinks who, who work in the court system. They did a study called the Risk Assessment of CP Exclusive Offenders, where they totally tore apart the seaport method. It suffers from, quote, at least three significant limitations, extremely small samples, inordinate amounts of missing data, and outdated samples. And they say, quote, it's been misapplied in forensic and courtroom testimony. And the conclusion of the study was that this should not be used in courts in the United States. And he passed the test given multiple times. He got passed the test given by his, his shrink that he sees in Maine and the folks at Paradise Creek. So everybody gave him passing score on a test that's flawed to begin with. Wow. I don't know what the solution is because this is way above my pay grade. But I do know, again, from my research for Unholy Fathers, that I'm actually an advocate here uh, for the case of chemical castration, which is very simple. It's kind of like a cocktail of different hormones. And uh, like one of these priests that I report on in the book, they take these hormones and it literally destroys their sex drive so they're not able to reoffend. Nobody showed me anything else that works. And yeah, it's punitive. It's not therapeutic. But um, I'm not sure that there's anything that we can do with these guys. And, and then there's this one last thing. Again, I don't want to go into the gory details, but there's a device that they use in uh, Idaho, where he is. It's not a device used in Maine. Uh, and I'll explain that in a second. But it's this device called a penile plasmograph. Okay, so it's a lie detector, basically, for the male sex organ. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Uh, this is where a very weird and creepy and underreported part of this whole industry. And this is used in prisons and in treatment centers where he went. So it's highly likely he and underwent something, but they don't talk about it in the promotional material. So basically, it's a, I don't even want to go into the details, it's a sheath. And then the, the perv is exposed to uh, illicit material, illegal material, okay? They're looking at some sort of image. And it measures their response through the blood pressure of the penis. Does it give them like a shock if they get aroused? No, no, there's nothing punitive here. Okay. So they use this as a baseline and they'll show them, and it's used for different sex offenders. So whatever your, uh, your sickness is, they would show you images from that. Wow. That's... That's weird. And then they use this, I would argue, uh, a relatively archaic device to then gauge the response, okay? Then at the end of the, in this case, Cutler's 28 days, or the six-week if you do the legitimate one, you're given the same test again, and you're, um, you know, evaluated again to see if it's improved in any manner during that therapy you know none of this is promoted nobody talks about it again this is all pretty brand new right obviously people have been addicted to things since you know humans have been around but this is unbelievable step in modernity that these these pervs have like literally unlimited access to this filth and stuff that 
we haven't even talked about it, how this victimizes the children. If these children mm -hmm. are victimized countless times, not just from the actual act where they're literally raped on camera, but the memory of that haunts them forever. And so many of the children that were victimized by these uh, creeps, they're wounding children that end up, you know, obviously booze, drugs, addictions, overdoses, lives of misery haunted by just shame and pain because of all this. And how do they feel when they see the news report that Elliot Cutler released from jail two months early because of good behavior? Yeah. 80,000 images, videos, all this stuff. There's That's a literally uncountable number of children, an uncountable number of victims. No way to determine the impact that this guy had. And so he didn't get punished. He should have died in prison. There's no way that this 78-year-old man should be out. How come he wasn't up on federal charges? If he'd gone to federal court, the amount of content he had could have locked him up for up to 20-something years, but definitely 15 years. He was only convicted of possession, not dissemination, right? But he uploaded the files. That's dissemination, right? You're sharing that. It's, I would say that the DA had a very provable case. Uh, Cutler uploaded this to Dropbox. Who is he sharing this stuff with? I'm assuming that the feds have been able to track other people in his network, but this is not stuff we can track. You know, it's all behind uh, sealed documents. Like, who knows? For all we know, Cutler turned on him. <laughs> okay, so we know the seaport's flawed. We know all the stuff is garbage. All right, I get really angry about this, and there's nothing I can do about it, right, because he's out of jail. The, the fact that the flawed test, the assessment, they're not going to haul him back in. I'm curious to know if the terms and conditions of his probation – inspection of electronic devices, monitoring of his stuff, all that stuff. I'm wondering if that's even being done. How do we know? I mean, I point this out in the Substack uh, crash report where it's like they call him in court documents Mr. Cutler or Elliot. Okay, well, I've read gazillions of court documents, and I never see the first name of the defendant being used. <laughs> so this is privilege, and this is what happens to privileged white dudes, right? He's a privileged white dude. He grew up in Bangor. His parents were very nice people. His dad was a doctor. His mother is actually a wobbly. His mother's a socialist, right? Really? Yeah. Huh. And he says it dismissively. Okay. He disses her in an interview. Because as I show in the uh, crash report, again, you can read all sorts of things about Elliot Cutler at the Muskie Oral Archives at Bates College. Because it's the Ed Muskie Oral Archives has all sorts of very interesting interviews with all sorts of interesting Mainers, including Elliot Cutler's mother. We'll talk about that in a second. Who, who owned him <laughs> in her interview. And he owned her. He's like, she's just a wobbly, right? Okay. His ego comes off huge, but also a sense of entitlement. He only went to high school in Bangor uh, for his freshman year, and then he went off to Deerfield Academy, which was a very famous prep school Fancy. in Western Massachusetts where he just messed around. One interesting detail, though, just before he left to go to Deerfield, he had gone into his father's uh, closet, okay? This is in uh, 1962, and found wrapped in plastic the raccoon fur coat that his father wore to college back, I would say, in the 1930s. It was like in a dry cleaning package or whatever. So when Cutler went off to Deerfield as a 14-year-old boy, he wore a raccoon for a coat. Oh and that gave him the nickname Beast. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm glad we're laughing again because that other stuff, I'm in a bad mood yeah. now, right? 
The beast. The beast. Okay. Raccoon for a coat. All right. Whatever, dude. Goes off to Harvard. He's at, he's at Harvard. He admits this freely in these interviews. Now, he was drunk his whole undergrad career at Harvard. Okay? But the mythologizing and myth-making, I would say aided and embedded by the main media, who just repeats his stuff. Like, if Elliot Cutler says it, it's got to be true. Yeah. You know, this whole thing of Muskie. Like, he was a protege of Muskie. He was not a protege of Muskie. Initially, in 1968, he was an intern who actually used the RoboPen. That was his job, was to sign uh, Ed Muskie, Ed or Edmund Muskie. His his decision-making process was to figure out which RoboPen disc to use. It's a very archaic but interesting way that he used to sign it. Where So he would get a letter from a constituent, and he'd have to decide which form letter to use back and how to sign it. That's what he was doing in 1968. Great work if you can get it. Yeah, but it was only an internship. Okay. But this is 1968, and the myth-making is uh, that Cutler had to make a decision in 1968 whether he was going to pursue a life of politics or a life of comedy. (laughs) We know he's not a funny guy. We're going to talk about that life of comedy in a second. He chose politics. He claims Muskie reached out to him to be an intern. Okay, yeah, whatever. I mean, Muskie knew... Cutler's family, and he must have seen something in Cutler. Revisionist history. He goes, gets the robo pen job, and then he becomes a regular staffer. You know, he's like in the kind of the media department and does various jobs. Um, For those who don't know who had Muskie, real quick, former governor, former senator of Maine, uh, former secretary of state for one year under Jimmy Carter. I mean, I, 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 I revere him. I think he was a very powerful inspirational leader i mean he's human right got problems whatever but like he did a lot for being from rumford maine okay which is in my neighborhood so like we revere him around here and people who are lucky enough to be in his orbit rightly so think of him as a saint right if you can attach yourself to ed muskie it makes you look good so we've been fed this line that he was a protege well this is something that i found out from cutler himself in these interviews where in 1971 or early 72, I don't know the actual date, he was fired by Muskie. <laughs> so if you get fired by Muskie from you know, the Senate office staff, you're no longer qualified as protege. And this is what happened. And this never got reported. No, no. I, I, and I found it in the archives from his own lips. This is coming from him himself. <laughs> in 1968, Muskie was the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket under Humphrey, Hubert Humphrey. Cutler was around then, but he graduated from Harvard in, I imagine, May of 68. So if anything, he was involved in just four or five months of the campaign. Then he's back and working for the Senate, and then the next uh, election cycle comes up, and this time it's George McGovern running for president, and he reaches out to Ed Muskie and says, Ed, I'd love for you to be my vice presidential candidate. Muskie flies back to Maine because he's got to think this over. Cutler's down in D.C., so he was drinking heavily at that time. So I'm assuming what happened next was while he was drinking. He was hanging out with a CBS News reporter, this guy Bruce Morton, very famous reporter. And he told, Cutler told insider information to Bruce Morton, and then it shows up on Walter Cronkite's news that night. Meanwhile, back in Maine, Muskie and his wife, Jane, and other staffers are like jaws dropped with this like insider information about 
whether or not he's going to run as vice president for McGovern is on the national news. And, you know, Muskie was angry, but even angrier was Muskie's wife. She never liked Cutler, so she had him fired. Now, he got other jobs in D.C. working for a committee and all this other stuff, and he got a law degree and blah, 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 blah. But I feel this portrait of him as, you know, the protege of Ed Muskie is completely flawed. My aunt actually worked with Cutler on Capitol Hill back in the day, and ego the size of the Lincoln Memorial, I think was the words. Um, (laughs) Right, he's a Harvard guy. Back to the singer, he has to decide whether he's going to be doing politics or if he's good doing comedy. And, you know, I've listened to enough Elliot Cutler's speeches and read enough of his words to know that he is not a funny man. No. He's not very personable. A lot of people talk about that. He's not a personable guy. He's fake, all this stuff. Okay, well, what's this life of comedy then? What's this myth of the life of comedy? So, according to legend, he was a member of the Harvard Lampoon comedy magazine. And... Two of the writers on the Harvard Lampoon went on to found the National Lampoon, which then begat, you know, the National Lampoon movies like Animal House. I mean, classic films. Um, Vacation. There's a bunch of them. Oh, yeah. Caddyshack, I think, was not was part of that, too. Big fan of National Lampoon ever since I was a lad. So when I find out that Cutler claims that he was on, you know, the Harvard Lampoon, I'm like, this does not sound real. Okay, so I was discounting it. And then I did a deep dive and I found, well, guess what? He's telling the truth. But he wasn't a comedy writer for The Lampoon. What he was was the business manager, initially, of the 1966 Playboy parody published by The Harvard Lampoon. Now, this is a thing back in the 60s. Uh, Many colleges had these uh, satirical magazines. By 1966, there had already been four Playboy parodies published by college satirical magazines. So when Harvard Lampoon did it in 66, it wasn't the first time. Yeah. The reason why this Playboy that Cutler was a business manager for was famous was because it made a shit ton of money. Okay. It was on newsstands across the United States, right next to Playboy. They sold over a half a million copies. And Cutler, his job, and I found the masthead from the Playboy, he was the business manager. And then in interviews, uh, he reveals that he was selling advertising. Okay. And the reason why they made so much money on it was because it was sold national ads in it. So he was hired by the, the, the bosses of the Harvard Lampoon to be like the, the sales guy, the ad sales guy. He's, <laughs> he's not hanging out. With the cool dude smoking weed and like writing jokes, he's selling ads. And oddly, again, when you start pulling out threads of these stories, the dude that got him into the Harvard Lampoon is Dick Spencer, who's a famous Maine lawyer who is a Republican lawmaker back in the 70s, and he works for a big law firm downtown. In fact, in 2010, when Cutler was suing or filed a complaint about the Cutler files, Dick Spencer was his lawyer. Dick Spencer was also president of Harvard Lampoon in 1966. We have proof that he was on the Harvard Lampoon selling ads. But thanks to the archives at Bates, he gives us a couple clues, and this is what I've been able to track down. He was allowed into the club because of a stunt that he participated in. He was 
given a task, let's say, we're going to talk about this task in a second, and he per performed the task admirably, and thus uh, he got into the Harvard Lampoon. And I have found film footage from the Associated Press archives that shows this event. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break for this ad. A word from our sponsor. And our sponsor is Bridget Spring, Maine at BridgetSpringMaine.com. Maine's 420 friendly tiny wedding venue. And my family's business. Nestled among whispering pines and sturdy oaks in the foothills of western Maine, Bridget Spring is a 22-acre farmstead with lush gardens and meadows where goats browse, pigs root, and chickens forage. At Bridget Spring, your glamping wedding adventure can take a variety of non-traditional paths, from a one-night Wednesday elopement escape to a weekend-long tiny wedding with food and lodging for up to 10 of your besties. All cannabis-infused wedding packages include a marriage ceremony in either the Flower Garden or the Ganja Grove with an officiant, that's me, live music, and post-ceremony toast and toke with charcuterie board. Mm. The entire Bridget Spring glamp ground is yours for the celebration, plus the cannabis, spring water, and firewood are complimentary. That's at Bridget Spring, Maine's 420-friendly tiny wedding venue. BridgetSpringMaine.com Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cabot! The Dick Cabot Show! Tell me about that video we just watched. It's a video of Natalie Wood accepting an award for the worst uh, actress uh, from the Harvard Lampoon people. And Cutler is the, the statue, the mascot. She's the prize. He's the prize. Yeah. So what happened was 1966, the uh, Harvard Lampoon present, like you said, presented uh, or announced that Natalie Wood was the winner of the 1966 Worst Actress Award. They said she was so bad that she was the uh, winner of the previous year's award and the next year's award. I mean, these guys sound like real dicks, first of all. <laughs> Natalie Wood is a stunning actor. Right. I don't want to talk about movies, but, you know, Rebel Without a Cause. I mean, she's been acting in films since she was eight years old. She is a professional by 1966. She's making lots of movies. Okay, not every single one of them's great, but many of them are great. And these are entitled Harvard jerks anyways. Like, she's been in the industry, so she turns it on. Okay, this is what I love about this story. She turns it on him and says, oh, I'll come and I'll receive this award. <laughs> Nobody had ever done it. They'd been giving out this award for 28 years by that point. Every year, these jerks are giving out the worst actress award, and none of the actresses ever showed up because it was rude. For only actresses or for actors too? Only actresses. Okay, so it's it's misogynistic. I mean, it's everything here. Patriarchal. It's Harvard in the 60s, 50s, yeah. 40s. Goes back to the 40s. So Natalie Wood, she says, I'm going to come and I'm going to get this award. And the Harvard fellows are like, yeah, we can make a big spectacle out of this. I'm about to reveal something that is known in very small, limited circles. But the Harvard Lampoon guys actually got pranked by who I believe the Harvard Crimson newspaper. This has not been reported anywhere. Yeah. And I found this by watching a clip on YouTube 
of a 1968 interview between Natalie Wood and Dick Cavett, who's like a great old talk show host. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cavett. So in this talk show appearance, Natalie Wood revealed what happened that day. The same performance that I'd gotten an Academy nomination for, so I didn't feel too bad. You were a good sport about it. You're the only one, I think, who actually uh, went up there and accepted it and probably astonished them. I understand later on, after I did, I started a trend and somebody else went. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought about it and I I asked if anyone had ever gone, you know, and nobody ever had. So I thought it would be a camp to go. And it turned out to be terrific fun because what happened was that we were in New York, you know, getting ready to go, and, and my um, public relations people had been speaking to a boy from the Lampoon, and his name was John something, right? Mm-hmm. And so he rang up the morning we were to leave, and he said, uh, oh, there's been a change of plans, and somebody has to speak, and so forth, and do you think you could possibly take a half hour earlier plane? Right. So we did. And we arrived there, and he greeted us and all of that, and he said, I know you won't want too many press, so we'll just rush you into this car and all that, and we'll take you right to the ceremonies. So we walked in, and there was a nice room, and there was, you know, a ceremony, and there were awards and all of that, and then they whipped off their ties and said, now, you see? Well, I didn't see, because what I did didn't, mean? you know. Well, it was not the Harvard Lampoon. I had gotten kidnapped by the other paper. Really? <laughs> And, and all the people from the Lampoon had a huge motorcycle escort and press and a band and everything meeting the wrong plane, you see. They made light and of you? And the other ones spirited... No, they gave me a good award. Oh, I see. <laughs> but they kidnapped you. They kidnapped They didn't me. abuse you in any way. No, they, they were very nice. They gave me lots of trophies and awards, and it was terrific. Well, if anyone tries to kidnap you again, just call on me. <laughs> so then there had to be this exchange <laughs> where then she gets into this motorcade. Right. Uh, yeah, that's why I want the listeners to really to go check out Crash Report, read the whole thing. But at the end of it, we put this almost never before seen footage, but definitely never before seen footage through the lens of that this is Elliot Cutler. <laughs> and now knowing what he is, whatever. Okay, so I'm just going to, I'll give a quick uh, verbal explainer of what happened. So Natalie Wood gets handed off after being kidnapped. She gets like in a convertible. There's a procession of a bunch of uh, it was called the James Dean Motorcycle Club. I don't know. James Dean was long dead by that point. This shows you how Harvard money is. There was like a, a motorcycle brigade of like 50 Harvard guys escorting her to what's called the castle. I've been to this place. It's the Lampoon's offices in Cambridge. It's the castle. It looks like a castle kind of. And they bring her to the steps of the castle where they got, there's a microphone set up. And there's, you saw the video, Andy. Just, uh, there's lots of people there. Yeah, tons of people, mostly dudes. <laughs> White dudes. You, you don't see a single person of color. I've, I've slowed it down. There's no people of color in this. There are some like movie star fanatic girls who are like screaming when she goes by, but it's these entitled bros, right? They yeah. all look like they could be from Animal House. There's a banner flying from one of the dorm rooms that says Natalie Wood, W-O-U-L-D, inferring like Natalie would have sex with them. I don't, I don't know what that is. Oh, wow. A, they're just like entitled jerks. Yeah. I mean, she's in a good sport for even doing this. Right. So anyways, the, the, the motorcade brings her to the, the castle. She gets up the steps, and there's a microphone set up. And as I show in this video, very strange, uh, and thank, God, thank goodness I can slow footage down, somebody reaches out and sprays shaving cream into her hair. I'm like, yeah, what the hell? Yeah. It was like a prank? Okay, well, 
Okay, you jerk. It's a hand off screen. They're also very handy. They're touching her. Oh, yeah. Violation of consent after consent after consent. They're manhandling her. It's terrible. I want to step in there and do something, right? She looks uh, very uncomfortable. Totally uncomfortable. But she's fake yeah. smiling because yeah. she's a she's a movie star, right? Yeah. And she brought it upon herself to say, you know, screw you guys. So she's got to yeah. come off looking good. <laughs> so the whole point of this is that they were going to give her this award. And the award was called Roscoe as opposed to Oscar. Yeah. Kind of a misspelling. So the Oscar statues, that very good looking, sleek, modern male, gold. Everybody knows what the Oscar looks like. I don't need to explain the Oscar. So these pranksters, these so-called funny men, uh, comedians, at the Harvard Lampoon say, we're going to present Natalie Wood with the Roscoe, which is a life-size human sculpture. But we want someone that's dumpy, unpleasant-looking, not good-looking. We want it to be the exact opposite right. of the Oscar statue. And the aforementioned Dick Spencer, former lawmaker, current lawyer in Maine, president of Harvard Lampoon, according this is according to Cutler, says, hey, I know a guy. Jesus. So that's how this dumpy, big-egoed kid from Bangor ended up in the Harvard Lampoon because he got dressed, and you see it in this video. First, you'll see this uh, sheet in the corner. It's a statue covered in a a sheet. And then they unveil it, and there's two-time main gubernatorial candidate and pedo criminal Elliot Cutler in gold, spray painted gold, long underwear, and a shower cap, not shower, a swim cap, like a bathing cap. Yeah. Gold standing there, posed just like the statue. And everyone's like laughing. And let me tell you, they're not laughing with Elliot. <laughs> they're laughing at Elliot. Right. Because he's not, it's not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> and he's laughing. And this is the thing that drives me baddie about this film he turns and he goes to kiss natalie wood and at this point i've seen all these other harvard bros kiss natalie wood on the cheek and all this other. they keep on doing it they oh, it's like yeah talk are you, where you come off thinking you could just kiss a, a woman you just met whatever but every at least all the other bros kissed her on the cheek cutler goes for her neck yeah yeah this is her neck i actually rewound it so you can see it twice in there he kisses her neck, and to me, that's sketchy. Totally gross. He's probably drunk. Yeah, he looked like a dumb, fat, drunk frat boy in that movie. That's what he looks like. And then he paws Natalie Wood, kisses her neck, just acts like a real cretin. Okay, but this was his first taste of fame because the very next day, and I put this picture up too in the crash report, coast to coast across the United States. There was a photo of Natalie Wood on Elliot Cutler's shoulder holding the worst actress award in 1966. You can even read the text in the picture. So that was the photo taken by the AP that was like literally front page across. That was Elliot Cutler's first um, exposure to the national limelight. Um, so I, you know, I'm not a meme guy, Andy, but I did make a meme. Uh, the, the how it started uh, with, uh, you know. Yeah. Natalie Wood mounted on his shoulder, and then you know how it's going is this you know mugshot because so I, I, yeah it's kind of funny all this other stuff. But my point being, I don't want to I don't be make, making light of any of this because it's all garbage. But my point of of showing that film and sharing it with people 
is to show that this guy has been a entitled prick his entire life, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Basically, at least since teenhood. But no, we could go back to even a kid as a kid because I've got the quote right here. You mentioned it. All right, let's close with this, Andy. This is what Elliot Cutler's mother told uh, a researcher for the Edmund Muskie Oral History Archive at Bates College. He was not a pretty or charming child. Elliot was too big. He had acne, too heavy. So that's what the mom told the researchers at uh, Bates College that her son was like. Uh, and again, it's like, this is a, all, so much of this is way above my pay grade. Cause like uh, he came from a good family. He had all the, you know, fine things in life. And, and yet he's a monster who's been hiding this collection of child rape videos for decades. And he's got kids and wives. Yeah. It's crazy. All right. Thoughts on that, Andy? I don't think I have anything else to add, except, I mean, this shows the level of privilege uh, that these guys have and, you know, ordinary dude on the street in Lewiston would not have been treated so well and gotten off so easily necessarily. Um, and we really dodged the bullet, uh, in electing, not electing this guy twice, but he always showed time and time again that he wasn't for the greater good for Maine. He was about himself. And, I, I hope this is the last we see of him in the public light. I know he's tried to uh, he's trying to rehabilitate himself or rehabilitate his image. I've heard or that he's like I'm going to try to make things right. Well, I think he should just just go away. Thank goodness he's a moron. Right, he signed into Dropbox under his own Gmail. Yeah. If he hadn't done that, he could have died a statesman, a silver-haired statesman, and want to be savior of Maine. Yeah. But luckily, now, when he does die, it's going to be that he's known for being, you know, a predator. I'm Elliot Cutler. I'm running for governor because I know I can do the job. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. It's going to be tough. But we can bring Maine back. Maine can work. What I bring to this race are the values I learned growing up in Maine, the experience I gained working for Ed Muskie, helping to write the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts, helping to cut the federal budget, and experience in business and law around the world. I'm not gonna give you slogans or sound bites. What you will get is straight talk and real plans about how to invest in clean energy, reform education, cut taxes, and create jobs. With me, you'll get a governor who isn't pulled away from common sense solutions by the extremes of either party. I'm Elliot Cutler. Independent. 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 Just like. Just like. Just like Maine. Just like Maine. He's big and strong. He's sad and mad. 